Hello and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrick Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. Alongside the recent mainstream adoption of crypto, we have also seen something of a mainstreaming of prepping. Now, prepping is the practice of becoming better prepared for emergencies. And before the pandemic, it was also something that was often joked about. But now it is estimated that close to 8% of the US population has embraced some level of emergency preparedness. This is similar to the percentage of Americans estimated to now own Bitcoin. To talk about the rising interest and importance of emergency preparedness and the overlap between cryptocurrency adoption and those who take seriously the motto of be prepared, I recently spoke with John Ramey. I was excited to speak with John given his incredible background and because of how much I have learned from a website he started called The Prepared. John previously worked in government circles, advising the White House and Department of Defense on innovation. He has also been a Silicon Valley-based startup founder, angel investor, and a longtime owner of crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. On this episode, John and I discuss the long history of emergency preparedness and how recent events are driving more people to embrace preparation, where ownership and use of crypto assets like Bitcoin overlaps with emergency preparedness. We also discuss North Korea, including John's journey years ago inside the Hermit Kingdom and what may happen to North Korea in the years to come. And I asked John what is particularly concerning to him right now that doesn't receive the attention it deserves. Well, John, welcome to the blockchain.com podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we have a, a standard um, kind of opening question we like to, to ask folks. Um, uh, do you recall your first ever money uh, that you ever earned? And, and can you share that story uh, uh, about your first dollar or if it was another currency uh, that you ever, ever earned? I do uh, in different ways. The, the first dollar I ever earned just in any capacity was I think I was eight or nine years old. I was the youngest FIFA certified soccer referee in the state of Florida. And I started, I, that's, I started doing, uh, refereeing soccer matches and that's how I got my first paycheck. Um, that was also my first experience with customer feedback when a parent hit me for giving their kid a red, uh, red card. <laughs> well, that the, is, that's a, uh, <laughs> That, that's a that's a that's a novel uh, novel way to earn a first dollar here on the on the blockchain.com podcast. <laughs> very very cool, and uh, thanks for sharing the uh, the feedback uh, story as well. Um, well, I, I uh, we're really excited to chat with you about the prepared uh, website you founded. Uh, that that actually um, some folks in the crypto world first uh, made me aware of, and um, but I, I'd love to before we even get into the prepared. Uh, we'd love to hear more about your background uh, and and your your you know your work in Silicon Valley and kind of le- what led you to where you are today. For sure, um, some of my background is Silicon Valley, and in a kind of a cliche way, you know, I dropped out of college and moved to Silicon Valley with flip flops and a hoodie and uh, raised venture capital and built a business and then had a lot of that typical story. I'm, I'm now an angel investor. I've built and sold multiple tech businesses, both in the Valley and, and other places around the world. But then the other part of my career has been involved with things like public policy, education, uh, 
this concept called innovation design, which has more to do with the ecosystems of uh, innovation and technology and entrepreneurship. So I have been a direct operator as a founder, investor, uh, mentor, whatever, uh, but have also worked more at this teach a man to fish type of uh, level where I've worked with uh, governments around the world, accelerators, have, have created nonprofit programs, all designed to help create more entrepreneurs in more places. Because I sincerely think one of the best chances we have of saving our planet, of, of advancing as a species, is through uh, people like, like this, like this community in the crypto and blockchain community. So I've done a lot of that work around trying to, uh, at a meta level, improve our machinery for problem solving in the world. And fortunately, that's taken me around the world. I've, I've lived and worked in 35 countries, uh, have spent time working with thousands of founders across tons of different industries. And so have kind of an interesting balance between that meta level and the personal operator level. Got it. And and what do you, one of the um, we're we're going to talk later more about kind of uh, cryptocurrency specifically, but just uh, wanted to bring in um, one of your backers uh, into this uh, kind of Silicon Valley story here. T Tim Draper uh, was was an investor, correct? And and people will know Tim in in, in the Bitcoin world as one of the people who um, won a number of those early auctions of the Silk Roads seized Bitcoin uh, a number of years ago. And, and is that kind of where your story around cryptocurrency begins or does it predate that? My crypto story starts around the same time that I started working with Tim Draper, for example. So Draper was the first uh, term sheet from a venture capitalist that I ever received in my life. So when I moved out to Silicon Valley and was trying to raise money, this was circa 2008, 2009, uh, Tim Draper and uh his group, led by Joel Yarman, was the first person to give me a term sheet for the ad tech business that I was working on at the time. So, yeah, he he and that group were part of my on-ramp into the general kind of Silicon Valley venture capital world. Uh, you mentioned Tim buying the Silk Road coins, for example. His son was also one of the first um, people in the financing accelerator side of the world to make something dedicated to crypto and blockchain. So they had kind of early seed investments, early accelerators, kind of think circa 2011, 2012. So yeah, that was my exposure to it was being in and around Silicon Valley. I was, I was hanging out with people that were on the, the very early edge of this. Um, that ended up being very nice for me personally, because through that proximity, I heard about the Ethereum white paper, I think the week that it released and that kind of adjacency and awareness is what got me into ether very early. And that obviously was a, a great financial result. So yeah, it was that kind of general Valley proximity that first got me absorbing the crypto blockchain world. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And, and, you know, let's, let's talk about the, 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 um, the prepared here and in, in your, your journey into starting that, website and your history with preparation were you a boy scout how far back does this go and and when did you kind of decide to kind of dedicate yourself more full-time to creating this amazing resource 
So I've been more or less a prepper my entire life. Um, you know, the press will often ask us, tell, tell us about, you know, the catalyst. Because it's common to hear a story like when dealing with media people, for example, or, or New Yorkers. It's very common for people to say, oh, when I went through Hurricane Sandy and Manhattan was flooded or pick your natural disaster, that was the catalyst that got me paying attention to this. And that's very common. For me personally, there wasn't a single acute event. Um, part of it is I was raised in, well, more of the Midwest. I was raised hunting and uh, camping and fishing and repairing your own engines and just more of that kind of self-reliance mindset. Uh, but also with a community mindset, right? The more rural you are, the more neighbors take care of neighbors, right? So, so part of that was just basic upbringing. Then you sprinkle in the events that have happened and formed my generation, right? I'm a millennial, uh, right? I was in high school when 9-11 happened. So pick your poison, 9-11, Katrina, all of the political corruption we've seen since. Pick, pick, your, pick your symptom. And for me personally, that just led to a worldview combined with the work that I was doing that we've talked about, like traveling around the world, trying to help various governments fix their problems. So I was an innovation advisor to the Obama White House, for example. So the Obama White House wanted to do a better job of fixing government. How can we make government better at solving problems, which... COVID would be an example. Hey, unexpected black swan problem. Gov the machinery of government is pretty bad at preempting, preparing for, and responding to those kinds of events. So, hey, let's bring in some Silicon Valley people, which in this case happened to me, be me, to make the machinery government uh, of government better at that stuff. So as I did more of that work and I was able to get into you know, the top rooms in the world, I could see just how just how disheartening things were behind the curtain, right? Like we tend to think, oh, there's a room full of really smart people working on these problems. And mm -hmm. I eventually got into those rooms and there's not, it's broken. So especially as my career got more advanced and I was both on the technology side, seeing what was happening, and then on the more kind of macro societal side, seeing what was happening with things like well, all of the pillars are institutions, uh, government, education, uh, what's happening with uh, the climate crisis. Just all those things together have painted a worldview for me that the next few decades are going to be harder than the previous few decades. Um, things are unsustainable. We can see now with the, you know, COVID has been nice because it's it's removed the need to talk about the why of this a lot. So many people now just kind of go, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I get it. I see the problems in the world and, and why it's incumbent upon me to take care of myself and my family and my community. And so that just colored my worldview, I think early because of the experiences that I had, but then now, I mean, the world has been catching up and that's why this community has been growing. Um, you know, you rewind 10, 15 years, kind of when, Web 2.0 social media was growing. Those those megaphones were first being developed, like the ability to have a YouTube channel. And the first people that grabbed those microphones were kind of the, well, the extremists, right? It was circa 2008, the people that thought 
you know, Obama was a Muslim secret agent that was going to enact Sharia law. And, you know, those were the people that were grabbing the microphone, talking about that craziness, and then also talking about, you know, you need to have food and guns in case the Fed comes. Mm -hmm. And yep. that was that that was that first image that people had, especially in the kind of modern media era of the, the doomsday prepper stereotype. And then it was then it was amplified by silly TV shows and so on. So in terms of the timetable, was it really around, you know, 2007, 2008 um, that that, you know, the term prepping uh, starts to get uh, mentioned in mainstream media and get attention? Or is it is it go back before that? And um, and and uh, what what really kind of kicked off, um, you know, kind of what, what is the genesis moment, you know, kind of like modern prepping, I guess. Yeah. Historically, you can zoom out and there's a longer timetable. Um, you can even go back to some of the cultural societal DNA of America with uh, westward expansion and frontierism. Right. It's the very same reason from a cultural perspective why Silicon Valley is on the West Coast rather than on the East Coast, going back to the gold rush in the 1840s. So you can you can go further and further back and talk about things like self-reliance culture in the Wild West. More modern times, the first thing that we point to is think more back around the 60s with hippie communes and alternative lifestyles where people were thinking, hey, we don't like this industrialization and urbanization that's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, they took more of a free love appro approach to it, right? But more of that kind of hippie commune. Then there was a period where people thought more about survivalists, and that was the word. So think more about um, people afraid about the Cold War. So then you had survivalists, and then there was a period where in the 2000s, the word prepper started being used more. And then people would have arguments about, well, what's a survivalist versus a prepper and all, all that silly. That doesn't matter. But yeah, just like any just like any subculture or community, it continues to change and evolve over time. And the words that people use change and evolve over time, even just for tribalism, no true Scotsman purposes. Uh, those words change. The idea of a modern sane prepper, um, I, I coined the term uh, around maybe 2015 or so in the last 10 years in particular, that's when we've seen this tipping point in the community. So for a long time, people like us had to be closeted about it because of some of the stigma and the way the media was portraying it. So I ended up being the first kind of quote unquote outed prepper in the Silicon Valley community. And it was an accident. Um, the founder of Living Social happened to walk out to, who's now a venture capitalist, happened to walk out to my car um, uh, while we were talking, and he saw an emergency kit in the trunk of my car, and that led to a conversation, and then I was outed. And through that process, I learned that there was a lot of other people like me. Everybody was just kind of quiet about it. And so over time, over the last 10 years or so, every year, more and more people in the technology community were coming to me privately and asking, hey, you know, I live in San Francisco. How do I get ready for the earthquake? Or, hey, I, I'd like to buy a gun for personal protection. I have no idea how to go about doing that. And I can't even talk about it because I'll be ostracized. And so I started doing a lot of that kind of personal teaching 
and every year the number got bigger. And around the election of Trump, which was a, you know, that was a cultural catalyst for this, that that kind of kicked a lot of people in the face, especially people on the side of the spectrum that, you know, weren't already thinking about these types of issues, people that thought things were more stable or they had more trust in our institutions. And then Trump was elected and that combined with other things like crazy natural disasters, it's just continued to, it's continued to teach people. And basically anyone who's paying attention to the world has been taught that sure, a lot of things in life are great, right? Infant mortality has never been lower, so on and so forth. But there's a lot of problems in the world and it's on you to be your own first responder. It's just part of modern adulting. And I think that's what changed is people, the the mindset of this is some weird niche thing that is impractical. The zombie apocalypse is never going to happen. It has evolved into a very practical, well, yeah, you know, half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. How do they support themselves if in, in an economic crash or uh, wildfires are four times more frequent and severe because of climate change than they were the year that I was born? So I got to get ready for that. And that, that more kind of practical mindset has evolved where rational, sane people from all walks of life have concluded that this is just a part of normal adulting, just in the same way that going for a dental cleaning or paying your health insurance is. Yeah, no, it, it, it really does feel like um, there's been a, a crossing of the chasm uh, before between where we were before, where I remember there were stories being written that were kind of like, ha ha, you know, these Silicon Valley people, um, this is years ago, buying up land right. in or I think Sam Altman maybe was mentioned by name or, you know, you know, more extreme yeah. examples of, you know, planning to, to run off to New Zealand. And, and it was kind of, you know, these, these, these folks were kind of ridiculed or, um, and there's something in the human psyche, I think that naturally kind of like, um, kind of attacks or criticizes, you know, um, you know, some aspects of this. And, and I, I wonder if you, you could speak to that kind of just general tendency to kind of initially, um, you know, kind of laugh at or try to minimize, you know, what, what folks were doing here. And now we've just kind of with the pandemic, I think, especially, but all the other points you mentioned, fires, uh, economic uh, turbulence, et cetera, have all led to this kind of like, okay, I think this is actually something that a, a normal sane person, as you mentioned, should be, should be thinking about. Yeah. The, the kind of mental resistance to it. Um, you can talk about it from a, just a broad human flaw perspective, and then also specifically why people are attacking the tech community. At a broad perspective, it's just part of our, our flawed caveman lizard brains, right? Like we are wired in certain ways that provide benefits, but also have consequences. And some of those consequences are things like normalcy bias, which is very strong. It's so strong that it can actually work in the opposite direction. And I'll give you an example from when COVID hit. There were people, even who people who I would consider extreme, who were focusing on pandemics, right? People that thought, oh, the the kind of um, Howard Hughes kinds of kind of style. Oh, the germs are everywhere and the, the pandemic's going to happen. We got to get ready for it. And then it actually happens. COVID actually happens. And in those first few weeks that it was happening, 
those extremists were saying, no, this isn't it. This, this isn't going to be a big one because their normalcy bias, they were so used to what was normal of it being theoretical that when it actually happened, their normalcy bias made them resistant to accept that. So it's, it's such a powerful, these, these caveman flaws are so powerful. Another example of just a core human flaw is delayed gratification. Uh, let's think about survival food, right? Something every household should do is you should have at least a few weeks worth of food in your house uh, in case, right, all of a sudden you have to go into lockdown or the supply chain fails. There are these freeze-dried food products, prepper food, where you buy it once, 120 bucks will buy you a bucket that covers about two weeks worth of food. You buy it once, you stick it in your closet, and it lasts for 25 years. So you might spend that 120 bucks now, but you might not get the benefit of it for 10 years, 20 years. And humans aren't good at that kind of delayed gratification. So there's all that kind of bucket of typical human flaw stuff. Specifically with the Silicon Valley angle, like the Peter Thiel flying uh, with the New Zealand island and the billionaire voyeurism. Because I was kind of the only um, Silicon Valley prepper who was willing to go on record about these things, uh, during that phase when the press was really focused on that that narrative, I was getting a lot of those questions. You know, how, Tell us all of the billionaires in Silicon Valley that have bunkers. And there was this kind of voyeurism um, excitement. Some of it has to do with the general press cycle that happens where things get built up and then they get torn down, right? That happens at a specific company level. Like you take a tech darling, they get built up, built up, built up. And then, of course, the day comes where they start getting torn down by the press and so on. That also happens broadly. And we have we have felt, you know, I've, I've been in Silicon Valley for about 15 years we could feel over that time how the public narrative was changing, right? In 2008, we weren't really worried about the common middle American person hating Silicon Valley. Now we are worried about that, right? And you look at what's happening where, you know, the alt-right needs a boogeyman, and one of those boogeymans has become big tech, for example. And so some of it is then amplified by the other things that were happening in politics in our society where the ebb and flow or the pendulum was such that in the last few years people have been looking for a reason to emotionally you know attack uh silicon valley the tech community the leaders of it sometimes very justifiably but oftentimes not and one of the ways that that manifested was oh those those billionaire assholes, they're the ones that created all these problems with the technology and they took her gerbs and now they're now they're going to take all our money and, and go hide in a bunker. And that was a narrative that made sense to that kind of community and the press liked to run with it, combined with just general, you know, billionaire voyeurism. And that's why you've seen this this narrative the last few years. But it has been wrong. I think the press has really done a disservice because it's not a situation of, oh, these are the people that created the problems. Now they're taking our money and running away and leaving us to die. That's not what's happening. What the press has missed is that Silicon Valley is, don't think of Silicon Valley. And I, to be clear, I'm not talking just about San Francisco in this case. I'm talking about 
frankly, anybody listening to this podcast, people working in the kind of uh, uh, innovation communities, whether it's in San Francisco or New York uh, or Chicago or whatever. The Silicon Valley community is not about coding. It's about problem solving. So if you think about Silicon Valley as a big problem solving engine, right? They're really good at it. It's one of the best problem solving engines in the world. The same skill set, like if you're a person that is attracted to the Silicon Valley life, culture, world, you already are predisposed as a person to think about big, hairy problems and how to solve them, for example, mm -hmm. right? That, that's how you're wired. And so it's not an accident at all that there's a hugely disproportionate number of people in the Silicon Valley community who are preppers compared to the general population. The general population, it's about 8% of people who are preppers. In the billionaire class in San Francisco, it's well over 50%. And then even if you go below the billionaire class, just anybody in, in the Silicon Valley community, it's it's disproportionately higher. And it's because we are people, you know, if you're an engineer at Facebook thinking about the type of uptime requirements that they have, you're also just as easily able to understand how fragile our infrastructure in America is. So, for example, we've got the Super Bowl this weekend. Last year at the Super Bowl in, in Florida. A hacker got into the local water treatment plant and increased the levels of lye, the chemical in the treatment process, something like 10,000% to the point that it was going to go out through the water grid and kill anybody that drank it. And to the general public, that's shocking. To IT folks, it's like, yeah, the, the idiot probably had the password written on a sticky note. Mm -hmm. And so the same predispositions, the same talents and mindsets and mental muscles that make you good at tech in Silicon Valley is the same reason why people like me started to go work in government on things like education and defense. And it's the same reason why we are also predisposed to understanding just how fallible all these systems are um, and what it would typically take to fix them. Cause it's one thing to identify a problem. Silicon Valley is typically also good at solving a problem or knowing if a problem is solvable and what it would take. And so we can look at things like climate change and know that, hey, you know what? This is a solvable problem. And it's frankly not a technology problem. It's a human culture problem. But then we know through our Silicon Valley experience that changing humans' behaviors without a direct incentive is very difficult. So that leads to a sense of pessimism of, huh, well, I guess we're screwed because it's not going to change. So you can see how those things all all work closely with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um Let's talk about the prepared, uh, the website that you created. For those who are not familiar with it, um, you know, give us the kind of introduction to it. You know, when you started it, what prompted you to finally to do this? Because you've been thinking about preparation long before the prepared launched, and uh, and how it's evolved uh, since since you launched it. Theprepared.com is a basically a free content website. So I started off just blogging just writing guides and reviews of, hey, other rational people out there who live in the suburbs or whatever, here are the rational research-based steps that you can take to become prepared. Here's where to focus. Here's the order of operations. Start with this, buy this, learn this skill. Don't worry about this. 
And we started there. And it even that was that had a huge impact on people. The prepared was the first place on the internet that you could go learn about preparedness and it wasn't wrapped in kind of culture war, political, you know, they took her gerbs kind of stuff. It started more as a side project. So I mentioned already, right, I was kind of outed in Silicon Valley and friends would come and ask me these questions and every year the number of those people would grow. So eventually I just started writing some of those things down. I'd make a Google document like, you know, California friends, here's the basic things you need to think about for an earthquake. Here's the things you should have in a bug out bag or a go bag, you know, have your shoes by the door kind of stuff. And it was just that it was that simple, but there was so much hunger for that kind of content. And the bar was so low because this, this topic had only been focused on by kind of the wackos that there were, it turns out there were millions of people that were just waiting for kind of a, a sane place on the internet to hang out and learn those things. So it, as I started this kind of weekend side blog project, it struck a chord and this was pre COVID, but post Trump. So this was around 2017. Um, the wave was already happening even before Trump, this trend was already, was already growing as we've talked about, but in the last few years, it's just continued to accelerate. In fact, I've got data for you. We've been working on demographics with FEMA, uh, kind of studies, uh, with FEMA and Cornell. And the number of prepared households in America has quadrupled in the last four or five years. So yeah, big growth curve. And I think we just were fortunate to be the first ones to have the, the credibility and, and, um, willingness to kind of come out in public and say, Hey, here's who we are. Here's our, here's our backgrounds. These are our real names. We want to show you that legitimate people are thinking about these things and you're not alone. You're not crazy about thinking about these things. Uh, here's a, a place that you can build a community and learn. And thankfully it's done very well. When COVID hit, that obviously just poured fuel on the fire. Um, we grew about 25 X in one week for context. The prepared was one of the very first Western organizations to talk about COVID. So we happened to be very early. Um, and at the same time, those first few weeks when the government was saying, no, you don't need to worry about, you don't need masks. For example, we had scientists telling you, no, no, you do need masks. You know, so in January of 2020, we were telling people, you're going to need a mask. You're going to need to be ready for locking down in your home. You're going to need to be ready for supply chain problems. And because we were able to make very reasoned factual, we had, we had data scientists from big pharma talking about these things and experts and just took a very, unfortunately, what is rare in today's media landscape. We took a rare approach. We tried to tell people the science. We told them the truth, even when the government was saying, otherwise. And that got us a lot of attention. Um, and it's just been off to the races ever since. So now we're by far the largest community of, of preppers um, from all walks of life, mm -hmm. young, old, whatever, take your pick. Yeah. And, and um, you, you mentioned, of course, it started with you know blog posts and, and there is a big community. There's, there's forums where people discuss and share information. Um, and, uh, you know, can you, can you talk us through kind of the full 
all aspects of the site and and uh, um, some of the other things you've added recently. There's there's classes I think now that are that are being offered and uh, it's not just links yeah. to where where you can go buy something that may be uh, mentioned in a, a particular article on say fire um, preparation. Um, but, but yeah, describe the full, full range of things with the site and, and, and maybe even if you could share, share what's, what's on the roadmap. Yeah. So the simple way to think about it is we started off as wire cutter for prepping, right? Hey, you want to have that two weeks worth of food in your closet? We tested them all. Here's the ones you should buy. But buying gear is not enough, right? You also need to know how to use it, right? It's one thing to have a first aid kit. Do you actually know how to use it? So then we started doing a lot of kind of skills content and we started off with just text articles, right? Cause it was, it was just me and a friend and we've been very scrappy. This is not a venture capital backed startup. Um, so we started off writing text articles and then ever since, especially with the last two years with COVID with all the attention coming in, we've been in kind of experimental mode. So we're still very much kind of a, a few person scrappy group just trying to figure out what the answer to this even is because it's very blank whiteboard, right? There, there has not existed a legitimate company that worked on this, that helped people with this, with this value proposition. So we've, we've had a lot of blank whiteboard and had to figure a lot of stuff out. You know, an example being what is the balance between talking about the why of prepping versus the how of prepping? because we don't want to focus too much on the why um, there's, we don't need to scare people, right? There's, there's plenty of reasons out there to be uh, plenty of things out there to be scared about. Trusted by millions since 2011, blockchain.com has crossed over 1 trillion in crypto transactions and facilitates around one third of all Bitcoin network transactions. Securely store, trade, and buy Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other top cryptocurrencies on the blockchain.com wallet and exchange. Go to blockchain.com to get started today. We then started playing with um, courses, as you mentioned. So speaking of first aid, you know, sure, you buy a proper first aid kit, which already is different, right? If you go to Walmart and buy a first aid kit, you're typically going to get a boo-boo kit, like an OSHA workplace kit, some band-aids and things like this. But if you're going out, let's say you're going out to a, a BLM protest, you know, there's potential for injuries that are more serious than a boo-boo. And so, okay, we tell you what those proper first aid kits look like. Like here's what the, here's what, you know, special forces medics would carry if they're going to a BLM protest. Then we started doing video courses for how to learn how to use that stuff. You know, even if you've taken a first aid course in your life, maybe through a local Red Cross or whatever, all of those red, all of those first aid courses are taught to you within the assumption that help is just a phone call away. That you can pick up the phone and seven to nine minutes later, a hero will show up with advanced drugs and electricity and knowledge. But we know for a fact that that's not always the case. So I want to know as a person, I want to know, well, you know, uh, let's say we're in Texas and the, the winter storm froze everything and hospital services and 911 services literally shut down for a few days. 
what if my family member had a stroke or, or some other kind of injury during that time? And there's no way that I can get professional help. I can't get them to the hospital. I can't get an ambulance. I want to know what to do in that kind of austere setting when help is not just a phone call away or a few minutes away. More and more people are seeing that that's real, that that happens, right? Right now, as we speak because of COVID, multiple hospital systems around the country are literally collapsing. Yet we as a species have lost 250,000 years of survival knowledge in the last 100, right? Most people listening to this podcast, they don't know how to clean a wound, how to take care of things that our grandparents would take care of on their own rather than going to the hospital and getting a $20,000 bill because our healthcare system's broken. So we're teaching people those kinds of things like, hey, this is a first aid course that is based on the idea that help is not available, that something is wrong, and we're going to teach you the information that others won't. And that makes practical differences, like with CPR. You know, the media and kind of basic first aid courses make people think that CPR is this kind of universal silver bullet that saves people, when in fact, CPR is usually not very effective. And if it's going to take more than 10 minutes to get professional help, it's in many cases not even worth it. So we're trying to give people that information that has been kind of lost in recent years. Yep. So we've got these video courses, the forum. We've mm-hmm. been working on kind of different software applications. Um, so we've, and it's, it's all very early. We're just kind of prototyping this stuff, like an app to help you manage your inventory, whether it's kind of like PC part picker, like, oh, I want to build a computer or, oh, I want to build a, a bug out bag. So we've kind of got an app for that. And in terms of future stuff, we're thinking more about that. Okay, certainly content, right? We, w- we want to have the best digital library of survival knowledge and, and learning reference material. But then we also think about tools for the community. How can people connect and, and create even little resiliency circles for their neighborhood? How can they track their inventory? How can they make this easy to integrate into their life so that it doesn't have to become you know, a, a lifestyle change. It's, it's more graceful than that. So we're still in that phase kind of figuring out what to do next and what works. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I want to ask you about the community side a bit more. And, and, uh, you mentioned FEMA earlier. Um, you know, some people who may come to the prepared.com and, and, uh, start reading may, may be overwhelmed. I mean, it's incredibly thorough. Um, and, and how important is, is it for people to try to uh, connect with others, you know, either online or maybe through a FEMA, um, you know, workshop or local seminar uh, to get some help along the way to, to kind of um, not try to go it alone and doing this all by yourself. Absolutely. Um, that is actually one of the things that has changed in the, in the community about the idea of prepping compared to you know, the previous generations that we talked about even 10 years ago before, you know, that people kind of had this mental image of Ted Kaczynski, right? Alone out in the woods or like a Mad Max kind of thing. Like, you know, you're alone with a shotgun slung over your shoulder, walking into the sunset, you know, lone wolf style. Rambo fantasies, I think is the term I've seen on your site saying, don't, don't, uh, don't engage yeah. Rambo fantasies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 
because it was thinking more about the walking dead, right? Kind of stuff. One of the big changes that has happened organically out in just the world. And I think catalyzed by, by us at the prepared by kind of really pushing this, uh, the lone wolf strategy is only good 1% of the time, right? The vast majority of the time community wins, and, you know, pick pick your example, right? The the African proverb about if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, we look at data from the Depression in the 30s. And the communities that fared the best were the communities that had um, kind of community resilience programs, neighbors helping neighbors, uh, food co-ops, uh, bartering services, things like that. So we see over and over again community typically wins. But because prepping had been this very kind of not only personal, but closeted thing, that that was incompatible, right? Here, here's this thing that depends on community. Nobody, people would even hide it from their own spouses. <laughs> and so th th that, that wasn't, there was, there was potential to unlock there. Um, you know, I don't want to be if the world ends, which we don't even talk about, right? You heard me say, I just think that the, the next few decades are going to be harder. It's not that the world is going to end in 10 years. But even if we were thinking about those kinds of severe scenarios, I don't want to be the last person on earth down in my bunker patting myself on the back that I was right. You know, haha, suckers, I'm now alone and life sucks. You know, <laughs> um, so we think a lot about it and push a lot. And, and the community is doing it. We're seeing people do this. Like when we, when we poll people, why are you prepping? It's not the old cliche answers of, you know, I'm worried about the libtards. It's I'm worried about when something happens to my community, do I have the ability to help people around me? Right. I, I, I have a home. I've got disposable income it is selfish of me to not prepare because if something does happen, I want our scarce resources like ambulances or whatever. I want our scarce resources to be focused on people who are less fortunate or, or who are more vulnerable. And so if I have the means to take care of myself and my family and even my neighbors and I don't do that, that's selfish. That's antisocial. And so that's been a huge shift in people's mindsets of I prepare not just for myself and for the kind of, you know, selfish, you know, just uh, keep myself alive reasons, but I care about my community and, and um, how it performs. You know, for example, some of the most active members in our community who have recently taken the first aid course that I just talked about, they are part of um, homeless outreach programs in cities like Seattle, LA, and San Francisco. And so again, you think about that austere medicine, right? They see somebody, they're, they're maybe working with somebody out on the street. Maybe they've got trench foot or some other kind of issue that comes from that kind of lifestyle and lack of hygiene. You know, you're not going to take them to the ER and have a $10,000 bill, but maybe you can help you know, these citizens are going out and helping with more of this kind of medical knowledge that they're gaining. So we're, that's just one example. We, we see thousands and thousands of examples. It's such a pro-social neighbor helping neighbor kind of thing. 
And that really warms our heart because it's been a huge shift in that perception compared to a decade ago. And, and running the community forums, I mean, how challenging has it been to moderate those with, you know, you mentioned kind of the earlier history of, of prepping and, and, you know, often getting very political. And, um, and, and I, I think one thing I've appreciated about the prepared is, is, um, you know, kind of the ethos of the site and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, kind of discouraging quote unquote bad prepping and people who take an attitude of, oh, I've got ammo, I've got water. That's all I need. I'm prepped. Um, how, how much have you guys had to, you know, kind of, you know, police and, and moderate the forums versus kind of just naturally attracting a kind of ethos and, you know, kind of community mindset that, that you, you've been discussing? Oh, it's been a huge issue. Um, we put, we put a unusually disproportionate high amount of moderation and effort into those things because we recognize that the culture war crap, just, just the stuff that has made the internet a bad place that gets in the way of prepping. And this is part of why I started it, right? So me as a person rewind 10 years ago, living in San Francisco, I'm thinking, Hey, I, I want to get a new water filter for my earthquake bag. Okay. It's a Saturday afternoon. I go do some quick Googling because I just want to figure out what water filter to buy. But I ha I'd have to dig through forums filled with QAnon people and just or people talking about, you know, uh, just the craziest stuff. And then in, you'd have to weed through that to find somebody that said, oh, and by the way, this water filter worked really good. And so it was really it just sucked. It was frustrating. And so that culture war stuff was a disincentive. It was a barrier to entry for these millions of people who wanted to not only learn more about this for themselves, but start talk, start building community, right? It's hard to go to your neighbor and say, Hey, you know, let's talk about preparedness. If your neighbor thinks that automatically makes you a QAnon idiot. So it's always been important to me from day one that the prepared didn't have any of that. Right. I often say that it's a place for anyone to talk about prepping rather than a place for preppers to talk about anything which is the case for most other of these communities. So we have a zero politics rule, basically a zero crazy rule. Uh, but because of the nature of our topic, like for example, when COVID was, was uh, the first few months of COVID, we were putting out lots of content that was debunking things. Like uh, we put out a big piece of content that debunked the idea of COVID being an HIV derived bioweapon. And then Twitter ended up using that article as kind of their fact checking to, uh, to, to moderate other people spreading disinformation. And so as a result of that, we had all kinds of crazies come in, right? So especially when you're dealing with the types of topics that we're dealing with, you know, government instability, <laughs> economics, climate change, you name it, there's a lot of crazy people out there in the world. And we think of our job as being a shit umbrella to kind of protect the community from that. And so we spend a lot of time and effort. Uh, we have somebody, we have a 24 seven moderator, right? For, for a three person team with a relatively young product for a third of their resources to be wholly dedicated to moderation shows you that it's a big deal. Um, I'm thankful to say that it has worked. You know, you, you kind of, if you're going to start a party, 
you want to be thoughtful in the beginning about what kind of people you're attracting, what kind of people you're turning away at the door. And then hopefully you get to the point where it becomes self-fulfilling. It's got that, it's got, it has its own inertia. And I'm thankful to say that we're at that point, um, you know, because most of the community want that too. Like if a crazy person comes in and, and starts spouting off on something, the rest of the community jumps in. They don't attack them. They just say, Hey, there's plenty of other places around the internet to go argue about that stuff. That's not what we're about here. No, thank you. Let's just keep focused on prepping and helping each other. And it's really warmed my heart that that has succeeded. And we've got a really wonderful culture now. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I suspected there was quite a bit of work going on there behind the scenes, but <laughs> that, that confirms oh, what I imagined. Um, well, you mentioned uh, economics and finance. Um, and there, there's two two questions, I guess, I wanted to turn to now. One is, you know, the financial aspect of, of, of being prepared. I think some people might, you know, who are new to this, be a bit concerned about the costs and, and um and I wondered if you could speak to that before we then um, talk a little bit about the intersection between preparation and, and um, you know, just kind of financial preparedness in general, um, which will then take us into our, our discussion of cryptocurrency. But first, just on the cost of prepping, um, you know, how do people, how should they think about that aspect? Absolutely. Um, keep in mind that when, when we talk about prepping, people tend to just jump straight to beans and band-aids and bullets, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you actually, so we've got the top ranked beginner's guide to prepping. Uh, and it actually says, Hey, step one is physical and financial health. So even before thinking about gear and first aid courses and things like this, we just try to remind people, Hey, are you drowning in high interest debt? Do you have three to six months worth of expenses in a somewhat liquid rainy day fund, an emergency fund? Um, that is always a foundation, partly because that's your biggest risk, right? Especially in America where our, our economic model is pretty screwy, right? More than half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, which is insane. Yeah. And so the most likely disruption that you are to have in your life as an American, uh, is financial. In fact, the number one most common scenario we hear of people actually using the preps that they spent money on is sudden job loss. You know, both, both parents lose their job. Now they have to tap into that 25 year food in the closet to feed their kid because it was a choice between going to the grocery store and paying the heating bill. So absolutely, there's a core financial foundation, basic stuff around rainy day funds, retirement funds, and so on. Assuming you've got that done, you're now ready. Okay, I'm gonna, I want to have some stuff. I want to buy that food. One of the very first goals in prepping is to be able to survive in your home without any outside help or utilities for two weeks. Picture back to, you know, the, the like February, March of 2020 when COVID was happening. Imagine getting an alert on your phone that says, go home, lock the door, don't leave for two weeks. Don't get delivery, don't go to the grocery store, don't do anything. Two weeks. Oh, and by the way, all the utilities failed. Your goal is to be able to survive that. So, two weeks worth of potable water stored in your home, which is about one gallon per person per day. So, if you've got three people in your household, that'd be 45 gallons worth of potable water stored ready to go. 
two weeks worth of food, basic medical stuff, communication, small solar panel to charge your USB devices in your phone, so on and so forth. With that goal of being able to kind of survive in your home or shelter in place for two weeks, thankfully, that's not a very expensive goal. You know, I mentioned earlier, two weeks worth of food is 120 bucks. You know, these water jugs might be 50 bucks. So the good news is prepping does not have to be expensive. Some of it is a lifestyle change, like using the FIFO first in, first out method with your grocery shopping. I can expand more if you'd like. But even with these things that you go buy, like these kits or this these products, you can get to that kind of 80-20, that 20% of effort and cost that gets you 80% of the value. You can get there with a few hundred dollars, which maybe you spend over a one or two year period. So even if you're working on a tight budget, there are absolutely meaningful steps that you can take for not a lot of money uh, and make a huge difference. Even, mm -hmm. even 100, 200 bucks of water, just water, right? Most Americans have less than two days worth of, uh, of, of water, of drinks in their house that doesn't depend on the, on the tap, on the grid. Even just being able to have two weeks worth of water if that's it, you just go buy a case of, of, of disposable plastic water. I mean, it's not the great way to do it. But even if you do that and put it in a, in a closet, better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thanks for putting a, a price on that. Because I think people, yeah, often will think, oh, I, you know, how can I ever afford, you know, like, you know, expensive bunker, you know, for those who are still kind right. of that generator this is. And, and uh, yeah, it's not it's not that expensive to to kind of get started and cover a lot of the more common situations um, that might and some of it's free, like using the FIFO method. That's that doesn't cost you anything extra. It's a habitual change and an easy one that makes you prepared without without overall spending an extra dollar. Mm -hmm. So the the financial aspect uh, of this, um, the other the other part we wanted to, of course, cover was was uh, you know money, uh, cryptocurrency, you've written also about precious metals. How do you think about, um, you know, as we move beyond kind of the more like, you know, hunger down in your house and, and kind of like economic or financial, you know, kind of turbulence and, and or even scenarios where you have to venture out and transact. Give us your kind of your thoughts around that whole subject and, and, and then how cryptocurrency could fit into that. For sure. So kind of stepping through it in a very kind of a very bottoms up, just logical sequence. We already started a moment ago with you want to have some some type of emergency fund, right? You lose your job, the uh, lockdowns happen, whatever. Oh, there's there's an economic crash, whatever. Do you have access to some liquid funding. Then it becomes a question of, well, okay, how is that liquid funding stored? Is it just sitting in a checking account? Um, do you hold it in something like precious metals? Do you hold it in crypto? That's where things get uh, well, more debatable, right? And, and more opinionated. For example, you obviously have a whole community of people who believe very strongly in holding physical precious metals. Um, 
then you have Bitcoin maximalists, right? And those communities will both talk about the same goals. They just kind of think about it and approach it from different ways. For example, the physical metals community, they still have a hard time wrapping their head or like they have this kind of gut reaction against crypto where they say, well, wait a second. If I've got some of my money in a, in a digital realm and then shit hits the fan, like, you know, you brought up North Korea, maybe a North Korean EMP, right? Takes out the grid. Well, not going to be able to access the blockchain if there's, if there's no technology. So that means I want to have physical gold in my hand. Or, or even cash, right? I mean, that would you argue that's kind of where you should really start? Um, yeah, before you start getting into something like, like metals and, and, and cryptocurrency is actually physical currency, us dollars in, in the U S. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, Everyone should have, in my opinion, everyone should have at least a month's worth of expenses. Like if you normally spend $4,000 a month, have $4,000 in cash in your house somewhere. You can build up to it over time. Um, but yeah, have physical cash on hand. I'll get, you know, and this, this stuff happens all the time. Uh, one of the people in our community uh, lives in Tennessee. And you remember last Christmas, there was the bombing on Christmas in downtown. I think it was Knoxville outside the AT&T building. That took out the basically the tele, the telecom network in that area, and the ATMs weren't working, and so a member in our community had to dip into their their kind of emergency cash box, you know, the cash in the mattress, in order to have cash to buy food for the next week, because all the ATMs and stuff were down from the bombing. Now that was a localized temporary issue, but that cash that he could just go get out of the shoebox made what could have been a disruptive Christmas a no big deal. So that's that's an easy non-end-of-the-world example. Where people get more argumentative about some of this, like the crypto stuff and so on, is, is more of the extreme scenarios. Well, what's the point of having digital money if I don't have electricity and, and, a, and the, net, the internet to be able to access it? When we talk about crypto specifically for this role... I encourage people to think of it as a local hedge, right? It's not a hedge against the world collapsing or the idea of money going away and we're in a we're in a Mad Max barter society. It's if you live in Venezuela and or China and you have a a local currency risk, right? The blockchain and cryptos cryptocurrencies are the way to kind of get out from under the thumb of your local currency risk. Now, many people in the crypto community take that concept too far, right? E even as someone who, you know, has shares ideals with the libertarian community, and I, I absolutely am against, you know, government authoritarianism and censorship. So, um, part, part of why I struggled with my career in government is because I supported Snowden, for example, and that caused all kinds of problems when I was working at the White House. Um, so I, I very much believe in, you know, personal autonomy and keeping the government out of, out of your pocket and so on and so forth. But I think the crypto community over exaggerates or over emphasizes the idea that crypto is stateless or that it is, it is independent from that kind of oversight. Um, if if you live in America and the American government wanted to 
ban crypto, right? Some people say, oh, that can't happen. You can't ban crypto. Well, yeah, technically the government can't shut down the blockchain, but the government can make your life hell in order to turn that in back and forth to fiat, uh, to, to transact with it. So there's all kinds of things that governments could do to impede the ability to use the blockchain. And so I think people over-exaggerate that idea sometimes, like, oh, I've got my money in, in blockchain because that means that no government can ever tell me what to do. No, that's, that's inaccurate. But it does help with those hedges. If, you have, if you're in China and you've got or Russia and you've got wealth and you don't want to have it all in that basket, which is a smart feeling, it can be hard because of things like capital controls to export uh, uh, renminbis or dollars out of China, for example. But crypto, it's easier. If you had some kind of local, like a Venezuela situation, hyperinflation or the dollar collapses or whatever, having some of your wealth not in the form of that currency is going to help you, is a hedge. It's going to help you deal with those things. So that's those are examples of where crypto are helpful for emergencies, but also where their limitations are. So what we say to people is, sure, there's the whole element of crypto in terms of it being, um, well, whether you call it an investment or a speculation, just, you know, you can think of it from a financial return. But then when thinking of it in terms of prepping, it does have a role, but it's not the kind of thing where you should have, you know, 20, 50 percent of your net worth in a coin just because you're worried about the American government or, or the Fed raising interest rates. Things things aren't quite so simple. Right. And uh, do, you, do you have any data on the overlap between cryptocurrency overship and, you know, the prepareds community or, or the prepping community broadly? I mean, how, how much overlap? Sorry. Huge overlap. Huge. I mean, do you think like over the majority of people who are serious about preparation own cryptocurrency? I don't know that I'd say the majority, right? If, if we think about eight to 10, maybe, you know, the, the number, do you happen to know roughly like how many households or percentage of households have crypto? So we know the, about eight to ten percent of households are preppers. Yep, in the U.S., uh, it's it's estimated to be in the tens and the millions, but but especially prevalent amongst younger uh, folks, um, you know, uh, forty and under. Um, you know, there's there's definitely double digit penetration from the various surveys and estimates we've seen of cryptocurrency ownership in the U.S. Um, so it it could be around in the U.S. around that 10% level, uh, perhaps even a bit higher. Um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, we need to do further work on in terms of measurement, but but maybe a, a pretty similar percentage. Well, to your point, it depends on, on the demographic. Um, so if, if you were to ask me broadly across the entire, the prepared community or just the, the same prepper community, no, I don't think the majority of those people hold crypto. But if we were to then say among the prepper community, among people under 40 in the prepper community, what's the penetration? Then I think, yeah, it very well could be the majority. So there's very much a generational thing. Um, you know, we have we have a lot of grandparents in our community, for example, who by their own admission are are not at all technical, but 
they're worried about what's happening in the world and they're coming in and buying our courses for their grandkids. But they don't they don't know the understand this crypto stuff. Meanwhile, our largest age demographic in the community is 25 to 35, um, mostly in highly educated urban places like the tech centers, San Francisco and so on. So, yeah, there's huge overlap among those demographics. Overall, probably not the majority yet. I, I want to ask you, as we're kind of running up close to the end of our time here, about uh, a blog post you wrote about visiting North Korea. This is going to be a little little uh, out of left field here, but it's just an incredible um, story that I, I really encourage people to, to read. And we'll put a link to it, of course, in the show notes. And, and I was just wondering if you could kind of walk us through... Um, your, your visit to North Korea, what prompted you to go? You know, this is something the vast majority of, of people <laughs> have not done. And, uh, and, uh, and, and then just writing that up. Uh, I mean, you shared some incredible details about that, about that trip. Um, and, and where are we? That was written, I think, about four years ago. Where are we today with North Korea? And, and how much uh, is it something that we should still worry about, which was one of the punchlines of that post? Right. Yeah, for, uh, that post was written, um, if you remember when Trump was kind of doing his narcissist thing on Twitter and having a fight with Kim, and then there was that, there was the false alarm text message in Hawaii about an incoming missile. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, it was, it was that weekend and right. Everybody was, well, I mean, hell people woke up on Hawaii thinking that they were under nuclear attack. Um, so that's why I put that post out to help people kind of understand what's actually happening inside the hermit kingdom to be able to evaluate the risk. Because other things that we hear about in the world um, are not as much of a risk. Like, I don't think Iran is as big of a threat as uh, culturally and in the media it's made out to be. So I wanted to see is the same true for North Korea. It came about, uh, this is during the phase when I was living out of a backpack and just a full-time traveler going around the world for a few years doing that innovation design, the ecosystem building. So, for example, I was in South Korea uh, helping develop their startup entrepreneurial ecosystem. And just by being in the area and then making some connections, I, I had the opportunity to go to North Korea. At the time, they were letting in around... 2,500 foreigners per year. They had like a quota. Uh, and then a sub quota for Americans. I think it was about 200, 250 Americans per year. And so I got in, uh, went to Beijing to do some training. So we were in Beijing beforehand to go through expectation setting and training, right? Like here's how not to be thrown in the gulag. Or you might remember there was, unfortunately, a young American student that died, a guy yep. named Otto Warnbeer. Uh, we shared the same tour guide. And if only he had listened to some of those, that training about how not to get arrested. Um, so we went through training in Beijing, then went in, uh, took, there's one specific flight. North Korea actually has their own airline that goes to Beijing. So got on the plane, flew in, uh, and then spent... I think I spent eight days there, which felt like an eternity because you're in the matrix the entire time. You're, you're tense and, and stressed the entire time. So that eight days felt like a month. 
And if you if you've seen some of the other documentaries out there, like the the gorilla documentary that Shane from Vice did when he went to when he kind of went into North Korea and snuck a camera, I had a very similar experience. Um, they would take me to, you know, they took me to an education, like to a school, for example, and they wanted to show me uh, just how just how good their education system was and how smart their students were and how much technology they had access to. But then that's where you hear some of these stories where they'll show you a room full of people that are, quote unquote, working on the Internet, but none of them are typing or clicking a mouse because they don't know how to actually use the computer. So had plenty of those kinds of just matrix crazy um, of, uh, um, situations to go through and experiences. Um, I had the fortune of meeting uh, some people that are well, trying to change things, right? There's even from the Silicon Valley community, some of my former venture capitalists, some former colleagues, you know, they're now working on altruistic projects where they're thinking about how can we, you know, how can we use Silicon Valley to fix some of these problems? And they're attacking it from a tech side where, for example, they've tried developing flat satellite dishes, uh, TV satellite dishes. Because if you think about a traditional TV satellite dish, it's like a curved parabola, right? In North Korea, they are close enough to South Korea geographically that if you could have a satellite dish in North Korea, you'd actually be able to pick up the South Korean television satellites. So there's a group of people from the Valley community that have been working on flat satellite dishes. And the reason that's important is because if they could smuggle those flat satellite dishes into North Korea, a local North Korean would be able to, to actually put that satellite dish on their home because they'd be able to hide it better. It wouldn't be this, this dish that obviously sticks out. It's yeah. a flat panel that they could integrate somehow into the side of the building. Uh, and it would be stealthy. So had the fortune of learning about, you know, how the resistance is working there. You know, the, the resistance inside North Korea is essentially just about information uh, trafficking information back and forth so that people on the inside can learn that there's actually a world out there and that what they've been told is a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just was a fascinating experience. I, I, I don't ever want to go through it again because of now what I've talked about publicly. I'm, I can't go back there again. Yeah. Um, that might be tough. <laughs> well, and they actually, they invited me then because of this so because of this work that I was doing, which they then later found out about, they invited me to come back to Pyongyang to be a professor at their university. They wanted me to teach entrepreneurship to North Koreans. And I, I honestly thought I, I, I thought about it for a day because I do believe, you know, I've, I've gone in some of this work that I've done. I, I believe that teaching the values of entrepreneurship and, and, and innovation can help very bad communities around the world improve themselves, kind of pull themselves out of those difficulties. And so I was like, Oh mate, you know, could this be a way to help, you know, start to pull on the, pull on the thread of, of North Korea. But I ended up saying no, because how in the hell can you teach a a class about entrepreneurship without talking about the concepts of private wealth creation, for example. And I didn't want to go to the gulag. So said, no, thank you. Ended up then doing some of these, this press where I've talked about more of these experiences publicly. And as a result, I, I could never go back. Yeah. Well, North, North Korea has been on my mind uh, recently with, um, you know, there's, there's a, 
you know, uh, a really incredible podcast series called The Lazarus Heist that the BBC put together, kind of detailing some of the cyber thefts and, and uh, attacks, attack capability of North Korea. North Korea has been uh, accused of, of being one of the major players in, in the theft of cryptocurrency from, from various exchanges around the world. Um, and, and we've been focused more on kind of these local, in this discussion, kind of like, you know, local preparation, staying in your home, um, fire or grid down kind of things. But there is this kind of bigger existential you know, issue around a country like North Korea, perhaps launching missiles someday or, or imploding and, and there being some kind of major, you know, war on the Korean and, and that's kind of the other end of the preparation spectrum is thinking about these kind of, you know, bigger nation state level issues. And do, do you have, um, you know, any sense or feeling of how, uh, you know, the North Korean story and the, the Kim dynasty is going to gonna wind up. I mean, I, a lot of people believe this can't go on forever. Uh, information gets in, people learn about how much better off, you know, other folks are around the world who, who have allowed some form of capitalism or economic development and private property ownership to, to happen. And, you know, floating balloons with USB drives or satellites, as you mentioned, and educating North Koreans is the way to get there. But there, it kind of scares me a little bit too, right? As people maybe revolt, what could what could happen then? <laughs> well, speaking of that, I mean, my understanding from a kind of government theory, national security level, the reason why South Korea and America haven't really tried to liberate the North or whatever the last few decades is because of just the simple logistics of, okay, now all of a sudden you have 23 million starving, uneducated, hostile people that you have to take care of. And just from the humanitarian aspect, that's overwhelming. So that's, there's even been this feeling of better to just kind of, better to just kind of maintain the status quo than to deal with the humanitarian effort of rehabilitating 23 million malnourished people. I mean, they're so malnourished that they're now measurably shorter than the South Koreans because they've had 70 years of difference in, in diet and nutrition. So that's one issue. But I really think the answer to your question is that the North, the, what happens with the North Korean story is f it's really frankly about the Chinese and Russian story, right? You, most people already have a general idea that North Korea is essentially like a vassal state of China and Russia. The only reason the North is even continuing the way that it is, is because of the support of China and Russia. Mm -hmm. China and Russia do that for a couple of different reasons, right? Like China doesn't want, China thinks South Korea equals America and China doesn't want America to then also have the North and be on its borders. Uh, China and Russia like to have Kim and North Korea as kind of a pro for proxy wars, right? Like if, if Putin doesn't want to, doesn't want to saber rattle with us directly, mm -hmm. you know, he'll go to Kim and say, Hey, I'll give you some food. If, if you go and screw with the U S on my behalf. Right. So the North Korean story going forward is really a Chinese and Russia story, which is concerning. Um, I mentioned a moment ago, not too worried about, you know, places like Iran, for example, but for a long time, 15 years, I've been saying, you know, 
Russia and China are are going to team up, as we're now seeing even just in the last few weeks where Putin went over to see uh, Z. If those two kind of team up and it really becomes this East versus West thing, perhaps amplified by problems like uh, climate, the climate change driven migration, depending what happens with India and so on, what happens with Russia and China is going to determine whether or not North Korea just kind of continues as status quo, possibly gets a little bit better over the decades as that thread gets pulled versus something actually bad happening. So, you know, if things take a few steps, if, if things get a few steps worse in the overall environment with Russia and China, let's say Putin does invade Ukraine this week, and then that leads to another kind of butterfly effect sequence of events. Yes, I could see North Korea um, taking a kind of crossing the line, you know, actually firing something until then. No. So you'd have to see something really, really bad with Russia and China before North Korea would feel like they have the permission or the, or the space to actually fire something off. They will of course, continue to do what they've been doing just like China and Russia are in terms of cyber, right? They, they will continue to do these proxy wars and cold wars, which happens every day, right? Russia, China, North Korea, other actors, they're penetrating our networks every day. We talked about the infrastructure earlier. Every day, those countries are trying to penetrate our electrical grid, our water grid, our telecom networks, right? We, f we find their spyware loaded on the computers at electrical plants in Tennessee, right? Like that happens every day. Yep. John, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. And I, I just want to ask you a little bit about kind of um, the, th the things you worry about most, I guess, or the things that uh, concern you the most, both um, maybe blind spots in the, you know, in the, the prepared community or, or areas that, are on the horizon that are emerging that that uh, that that we're not making progress fast enough on. Um, what what are the kind of things that are kind of occupying your mind and, and are of particular concern right now? Do you mean at like a societal level? Or, it can or... be a societal level things like decentralized electrical grid and not not moving quickly enough, or or even just you know kind of blind spots that many people who are trying to to be better prepared, uh, tend to have, and, and, you know, you want to do more work to try to educate or, or open people's minds up around that, or just any emerging things, uh, that, that, you know, you think, uh, people just underestimate or aren't thinking enough about all kinds of examples. Um, you mentioned decentralized power and the kind of where we're at in the Moore's law tech curve that's that's one huge example we it feels like we're in kind of a puberty period like a transition period where we're now starting to have the technology to be able to reasonably make each home unit self-sufficient right that's that's a blind spot i think we have as people and as a society and government i've been pushing a lot for hey let's not think about you know, build, building a bunker in the middle of the woods, let's think about making our existing communities more resilient. Why in the hell is rooftop rain catchment not common everywhere, right? 
why do we let water fall on our home, take all this effort to put it out into a sewer, to take it all the way away from us, just to then pipe it back to ourselves, and then, oh, by the way, that grid failed. Why don't we have things like rain catchment? Why don't we have battery banks built into our HVAC closet, right? Things like that. So that's one area that I'm very excited about the next the next decade or so is kind of the osmosis or the proliferation of some of the things that are still relatively early in tech and how that can be used at a personal level for more self-reliance. Um, uh, some of the hydroponic kits that you're seeing from tech startups are another example. Um, communication is another one, right? What happens when we don't have the telecom grid? Well, the only real good answer to that is radio. And we have, right, the government set aside a whole spectrum of public radio for things like CB and HAM. That community is, right, it's aging out. And I really want to see kind of a resurgence or a renaissance in radio because we have to have a non-grid-based communication backup, but the barrier to entry is too high today. It's too kind of, um, it's too geeky. The equipment is too, too esoteric. Like we, we kind of need an iPhone moment in ham radio. So those are some examples there. In terms of what we're, what we're worried about, I come back to the big pillars, you know, and, and, and particularly what we call the jackpot effect. Right. So if you think about like a, hitting a jackpot at a casino where you get like seven, 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 it's the convergence of things together. So the climate change crisis and everything that comes from that, right, drought, increased natural disasters, migration, wet bulb temperatures that are going to make cities like Phoenix literally uninhabitable for a month out of the year, um, uh, uh, crop degradation the sixth extinction that we're seeing with species and bee colony collapse and take back all of these cascading consequences from the climate change crisis combined with where we already are on shaky footing economically, right? We've talked a lot about how half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, right? You think about things like uh, income inequality, right? The, the fact that 200 people made a trillion dollars during the pandemic. Well, the vast majority of people struggled, right? Those are symptoms that the system isn't working and things aren't sustainable. And we know that, right? We know that things are not sustainable, whether it's from resource production or how we use capital and spend the plant. It's not sustainable. So you have these climate driven issues combined with the shaky footing that we're on economically combined with the failure of our democratic and governing institutions, right? Like government is broken. And one of the things I walked out of my White House and Pentagon experience with is it's irreparably broken. So when you've got those big existential problems like climate and economy and the institution that is supposed to be managing that, preventing it, preparing for it, reacting to it sucks, that is an equation for a lot of pain. And that's what the vast majority of people are worried about, is that kind of convergence of those factors over the next few decades. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of this this comment that is made about 
airplane airplane resiliency and how oftentimes when there is a you know rare commercial airline crash um you know this this there's it's not just one thing that went wrong it's a combination of things um and and i think people maybe can say oh i'm, I'm prepared for fire or something or or some siloed kind of scenario but, right. but when these things start to play off each other and combine and become a nonlinear, I mean, it's hard to imagine where things could go and, and uh, that, that can make it even, even more challenging. Well, think about um, my accountant lost his home in the Boulder, Colorado fire that happened over Christmas a few weeks ago. When it, when the wildfire started, think about that, a wildfire over Christmas in Colorado and, and a thousand homes were gone like that. So my accountant was one of them, fortunately lost his home, but that is layered on top of the supply chain issues that are already happening. That's layered on top of the housing crisis that is already happening. Those folks that were just displaced by that fire, they're paying $20,000 a month for rental houses because of the demand supply, all the, all the wonkiness that's happening out there. So these things are just layering on top of each other, and we're going to see more and more of that kind of resonance and amplification, it, it's, it's just going to get worse. John, we really appreciate you taking time to talk with uh, the blockchain.com community about um, preparation and, and sharing your experiences. There's a lot to, to digest from this. We could keep talking for hours, um, but, but where uh, do you want to send people who want to take this conversation and, and, uh, and learn more, get started? Theprepared.com. You know, we've got a forum, chime in. It's still an early project. Come help us build it. Come help contribute your ideas. And we're all just trying to figure this out together. Because again, community wins. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate us and leave a review as it really helps boost our visibility to more listeners. Also, if you have a topic you'd like to see us cover, please get in touch at the following email address podcast at blockchain.com. Once again, that's podcast at blockchain.com.